This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Good morning, everybody. Happy Easter plus seven. It is it's good to see you. That's where you could say, right back at you. Or like my five-year-old son likes to do, just give me one of these. He does enjoy that. It's like a nervous tick these days. He's shooting everywhere. Which, by the way, just a note, I'm going to talk about helping out my daughter's class. I actually did that to some of the kids last week, and I learned in school, you don't want to do that to kids. It is not a good choice. So we haven't even started the sermon yet. I'm already helping you in case you end up coming to work at your kid's class. Hey, here's what I said last week. If you weren't here, if you missed it, last week was Easter. It was a big day for us as a church. And, and I asked this question to start off last week. Could it be true that God is actually alive? Could it be true? Could it actually be real that God is not dead? He is alive. And then we dug into that because we said, if that's true, if God is alive and he is present and he is engaging with us, And that's a game changer. I mean, it literally changes everything. And if you missed last week, I'd love to have you listen online because I think we we pretty convincingly share that is true, that God is not dead, that he actually is alive, and that it is a game changer for us. But this week, we're starting a new series called The Good Life. And in this series, we're asking this question, so what do we do now? If it's true that God is not dead, that God is actually alive, what do we do with that information? How is that supposed to actually change and transform our lives? And if you're brand new with us or if you're back from last week, I just want to say an extra special welcome to you. If you are a guest, I want you to know uh, we created this place for you, a safe place for you to come, ask questions, explore your faith. So just get comfortable, kick off your shoes if you want to, grab a cup of coffee out in the lobby, feel free to bring it in and enjoy yourself as we engage with God this morning. And I want you to know, we aren't going to make you do anything. I'm not going to make you jump up, introduce yourself. I just want this to be a safe place for you to really engage with God, because I believe that God wants to meet with you today. You may or may not believe that's true, but we believe that God is not some distant deity out there, but God is more like a personal, powerful, loving, heavenly Father who is here, who's ready to engage with you even this morning as you connect with Him. So a few things will help us get on the same page together. When you walked in, you should have received a program. Inside of that, you're going to want to grab this card that says Start Here, and go ahead and put your name on that. It's our connection card. It just helps us stay connected to you. It's your way to have access to our pastoral team so we can pray for you, so we can partner with you in any way we can. So go ahead and get that ready. We're going to use this a little bit later on this morning, so you don't have to do anything with it yet. But if I've earned your trust over the next 35 minutes or so, I'm going to ask you a little bit later to drop this in some baskets when they're passed. The other thing are our teaching notes. They'll tell you the Bible verses we're looking at today, uh, some fill in the blank, some spaces for you to write down questions, ideas, and thoughts as we continue to dig in. Well, like I said, uh, I have the opportunity to volunteer in my daughter's class. She's in second grade, uh, which means that I've been with her every Friday morning for the past three years, kindergarten, first grade, second grade. I accidentally said in the last service that she was in third grade, and apparently that got back to her in her kid's room, and she came up to me and she said, Dad, I am not in third grade. I said, it seems like you're in 12th grade, actually, with that kind of a thing. She said, I'm in second grade. I said, I know. Thank you, Maddie. That is so helpful. So she is in second grade. When you see her, you can let her know that I got it right. 
But every Friday for three years, I was this dad in kindergarten. I ran into back to school night. I was like elbowing grandmas and moms out of the way to get to the sign-up sheet so I could sign up for Friday mornings to help out in class because I just want to be part of my kids' lives. And so every Friday, I'm grading papers. If I can, I try to like schmooze the teacher and work my way into giving spelling tests and math tests. I really like being up front uh, and talking a lot. And so I do that. Uh, and here's what I've learned from my three years of being with this group, because it's a small school, so it's only one class. There's only one actual classroom of second graders, and they've been together for three years now. Here's what I've learned. No child in there, no second grade child has ever said to me, Kevin, when I grow up, I really want to have a life that is full of regret. That is what I really am looking forward to. Said no child ever to me. Kevin, you know, if I could just dream about my life for a few minutes, and that's what seven-year-olds do, dream about my life. If I could dream about my life, I want a life full of needless heartache. That's what I really like. I want a life, Kevin, where, where I am I'm trapped by some sort of addiction or addictive substance or pattern. Boy, that would be great. Said no second grader ever in the history of the world. And yet many of us grow up. When we were there we thought and dreamed about having a good life, a fun life, an engaging life. And none of us ever dreamed about having a life that was full of, of pain, heartache, regret. And I'm not talking about the kind that's thrust upon us because we all have some level of pain in our life, some level of heartache that has been thrust upon us. I'm talking about the stuff that we choose to do. All of us growing up said, I want to have a good life. I want to have a life that is marked by freedom. I don't want a life that's marked by crippling self-doubt or insecurity. I want a life where I feel comfortable in my own skin, where I make some sort of difference in my small corner of the world. We all define it a little differently, but every one of us wanted to have a good life when we were kids. So then we should ask the question, well, how did we get from there to here? Because all of us has some level of self-inflicted regret, self-inflicted pain, self-inflicted heartache. I'm not talking about the kind that was thrust on us. I'm talking about the kind that we, we did to ourselves. And my assumption about each of us is that each of us really wants a good life. And so my assumption is that the choices that we have made in our lives, we make because we have some underlying stories or narratives that tell us, if I make this choice, it will get me this life. And then we walk down a path and we get there and we realize, I thought this choice would get me to the life that I wanted, but this choice actually got me to heartache, let's say. I thought he was the right one, she was the right one, that they would bring me a good life and they, that choice brought me heartache. Or, boy, when I was in high school, I just started partying because I felt like it would help me loosen up and feel better and that partying continued. And, and when you're in college, that partying is kind of cool. When you're in your 20s, you're, you're that guy. And by the time you're in your 30s, you're an alcoholic, Right? Nobody wants to be that guy in their 30s. But when we started, we didn't start out thinking, boy, I want to be trapped by addiction. We started out thinking, this is fun. This is going to lead me to a good life. Underneath each of our choices is, is an assumption, is a story, is a narrative about what actually brings true life. And we're launching this brand new series called The Good Life because what I want to do is I want to dive in to one of Jesus' most famous sermons— it's the longest sermon he ever preached. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, and it's called that for one simple reason. He preached it on a mountain. And so they thought, what should we call this sermon? Let's call it the Sermon on the Mount, because there was no sound system. So Jesus went up, he saw this huge crowd gathering, went up on a mountain, and began to teach the people so they could hear him. And in this sermon, Jesus is talking to a, a vast array of people. 
we've got religious leaders. They were the, like the pastors and the priests of his day. They were there checking him out to make sure his, his theology, his understanding of God was correct. So they were like fact-checking him. They were on their smartphones checking to make sure his Bible references were right. Is that the right translation? That was them. Then we have the regular Jewish people who were just trying to follow God, just trying to make it through life. Us, the everyday folks. Then we had Roman guards because Rome was the superpower of Jesus' day. And anytime a group of Jewish people gathered together, the Romans were afraid they were going to revolt. So they weren't there so much to listen to Jesus. They were there to make sure that when hundreds or thousands of people gathered together, they wouldn't start a revolution or a revolt. So anytime crowds gathered together, you can assume there are Roman guards there. We talked about them last week. Big, strong Roman guards with mustaches. Remember, these guys, they are tough. And so they're there listening. And Jesus' audience could not have been more diverse And he looks him in the eyes, and he pauses for a moment, and then he starts his most famous message. And it's not about a list of rules. This is right, and this is wrong. If you were raised going to church, and you heard your pastor or your priest talk about the Sermon on the Mount, it might have gone something like this. This was the story I heard when I was a kid. The Sermon on the Mount is a list of ethical rules to tell us what to do and what not to do, and they're so extreme that you and I can't actually do them. And so the point of the Sermon on the Mount is to teach us that we need God to save us. And then Jesus says, oh, by the way, I'm the Savior. Surprise. In my, listen, in my, in my humble but correct opinion, that is not the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. It's just not. And here's how I know. Jesus would not spend an entire sermon telling people, you're failing, you're failing, you're failing, you're not good enough, you're not good enough, you can't measure up. That's not his style. That's not his MO. What Jesus was doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he was saying to the people, there are some stories that you believe. We'll call them narratives. And they're dominant in your life. They're narratives about yourself and your worth and your value. They're narratives about other people. They're narratives about happiness. Narratives about forgiveness. They're narratives about God. And what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount is he said, I I don't want to give you a list of actions that you actually can't fulfill. I want to help you rewrite some narratives, some stories to help you understand God a little differently, understand yourself a little more completely and understand the way life works a little better. Because Jesus believed that under our actions are our stories. We have stories about the way life works and what's going to lead us to a good life. And Jesus said to the people as he stood on this mountain and began this sermon, the stories that you're believing are leading to actions and actions are leading to patterns and patterns are going to give you the life that you have. And I'm telling you, if you're not getting the life you want, it could be that you're not understanding the stories that God wants you to understand. And so the Sermon on the Mount is all about him rewriting some of these stories. And what we're going to do for the next like nine weeks is dive into the Sermon on the Mount, really dig into it, and look at these narratives, look at these stories that Jesus tells to help us understand what's underneath the surface of our actions. It's not going to be nine weeks to tell you what to do, do this, don't do that, say this, don't say that. It's nine weeks talking about how to understand God, how to understand relationships, how to understand ourselves. Today, what I want to do, though, if you're new to New Life, Today is like an intro 
Because these, these sermons that we preach, these series are too big to just dive into it in the first week. My goal today is just to kind of lay out some framework. And I'm going to warn you right now, the stuff we're talking about today, it's kind of theoretical. You're going to have to kind of dig in. This whole series is going to be a lot. It's like a thinking person series. But, but listen, I told you last week, you are incredibly smart. I know that because you're here. You're incredibly smart. So you're going to have to dig in. Because what I want to do today is I want to lay out a framework, a foundation for the entire series. And when we start a series, I say we like to crockpot it. We like to sit with it for a while. We like to let it marinate because while a microwave, it'll sustain you eating microwave food, corn dogs, and that kind of stuff. Truth is, it doesn't taste very good. And the flavor, the fragrance, the smell is not what you want it to be when you microwave your food. So we like to crockpot things around here. We like to slow cook it. We like to marinate it. So today I'm just going to, I'm going to tenderize the sermon. I'm going to marinate it. We're going to slow cook. So when you come back next week, you're going to be like... Oh, that smells good. I want some more of that. Give me some of that Sermon on the Mount. That's what you're going to be thinking to yourself. So Jesus lays out the Sermon on the Mount, and he does it kind of like this. Do you remember being in elementary school and having to write a five-paragraph essay? Do you remember having to learn about five-paragraph essays? My dad was a principal, and uh, he made sure I knew what I had to do in school. Principal, the last three letters, by the way, spells P-A-L, because the principal wants to be your pal. That's what my dad used to tell me. And I believed him. So I was in the principal's office quite a bit as a kid, thinking, hey, you just want to be my pal. Here's what a five-paragraph essay is if you're brand new. A five-paragraph essay goes something like this. The first paragraph is where you have your thesis statement, your hook, the thing that you want people to grab. This is where you lay out the big idea. Then you've got the body of a five-paragraph essay, which is where you, you dig into the specifics of your main idea, your hypothesis, your thesis statement. You dig into the specifics, and then you've got the closing paragraph, which is kind of where it all gets summed up. You say, based on this, 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 my hypothesis is correct, and that's your closing paragraph. What I want to do today is start with Jesus' opening paragraph for the sermon, and then skip all the way down to the closing paragraph, and I'll tell you why in just a few minutes. But Jesus opens the sermon with his big idea, and here's his big idea from his own mouth in Matthew chapter 4. This was recorded by, by one of his closest friends. From this time on, Jesus began to preach or teach or share or talk. And he said this, repent. And we're going to get back to that word in just a second. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven, and I want you to underline this next part, has come near. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Have you ever noticed that when something is really bad, we say it was hell, like war is hell, Genocide is hell. My divorce was hell. That class was hell. Um, the Netflix spin-off Fuller House is hell. You know, it's like, come on. Have you seen it? It's bad. It's bad. Did you know that when the Bible talks about hell, the working definition for hell is basically this. Hell is the absence of the presence and power of God. Any place where... The power and presence of God is pulled away, is hell. And that's why we look at atrocities like genocide. That's where we look at personal tragedy like a a very scarring divorce. And we say, that was hell. Because we look around and we think, I don't know where God is in that moment. I can't see God there. I can't find God there. And the truth is, every one of us will go through difficult times in our lives. We'll go through times that are thrust upon us that seem insurmountable and extremely painful. But Jesus promised to us is that we never have to go through hell. Why? 
because he says that his power and presence is available to us all the time. That there's never a moment, we just sang in this last song, not for a moment would you forsake me. That there's never a moment as a follower of Jesus where his power and his presence is not available to every one of us all the time. And that's what he means when he says the kingdom of heaven has come near to you. Or it's near to you. So as Jesus lays out the framework for the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, he's up on this mountain. He's got people as varied as any one of us in this room. And he looks them in the eye and he says, you don't ever have to experience hell on earth because God, the kingdom of heaven, sometimes he calls it the kingdom of God, has come near to you. Here's how he starts off. Let's break down that passage. It says he began to preach. And here's the first word of his, of his sermon. Repent! Repent! Boy, if you were raised in the church, that's like, that's like a really bad word. That might conjure up images of preachers with Bibles saying, repent, repent, or big podiums, you know? If I had, I would break my iPad if I smacked it. But like, repent! And when we hear repent, most of us think, stop screwing up. Stop being such a jerk. Shape up. Stop being lame. Stop being such a mess up. Get it right. Stop being so unworthy. That's what we think of when we hear repent. So repent has become like this four-letter word in Christian circles. It's like, oh, I'm so horrible. I must repent. But did you know that that's not what that word actually means? The word repent literally means change your mind. Change your mind. Have a change of thinking. It's not a threat. It's actually an invitation. Jesus says, I want to invite you. Change your thinking about God, about yourself, about relationships, about the world. And he he says, here's why I want you to change your thinking. Because the kingdom of heaven, the power and presence of God, has come close to you. Now, for a Jewish audience who thought that God was over here controlling things, very much in control, but also very distant. To hear that the kingdom of God, that God's power and presence was in their midst, had drawn near to them, was life-changing. Now, most of us were taught about the kingdom of God, if we were taught about it. And by the way, it's interesting, I don't know that, that I've ever preached a full sermon other than today about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. But Jesus taught about it over a hundred times. Did you know that? Over a hundred times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And when we think about the kingdom of God, we think about some eternal destination. That Jesus came, he gave his life on a cross, he rose again, which we celebrated last week, so that we could have our eternity sealed. And the truth is, that is part of the kingdom of God. That when you and I become uh, sons and daughters of God, when we enter into a relationship with God, our eternity is sealed in heaven. That's part of it. But did you know that while the kingdom of God is not yet, while it is still coming in its fullness, the kingdom of God is actually here right now? He says the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is any place where God's power and presence rests. I'm going to share something with you in just a second. And and partway through me sharing it, you're going to want to erupt into spontaneous applause. So I just want to warn you about that. Did you know that last week on Easter, we had 12 people make decisions to give their lives to Jesus? That's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. 
I love it. It brings me to tears every time someone makes a decision to give their life to God. But if you're one of those 12 people, you're probably thinking, so now what? What do I, what do, I do between now and the time that I die? Because a lot of us were taught that, that following Jesus is kind of like, like life insurance, you know? Eternity is long. Hell is hot. I better get some fire insurance. That was kind of our theory. That was mine. I grew up going to church. Uh, we were Baptists for a while, Presbyterians for a while, Nazarenes for a while, which meant sometimes we couldn't dance. You know, sometimes uh, I could never dance, but sometimes we couldn't dance. Sometimes we couldn't wear a wedding ring. Sometimes you couldn't drink. Other times they loved to drink. You know, it was like crazy. But then at 17, at 17, I started really following Jesus on my own. I realized, oh my gosh, this is real. God is actually here in my midst. And I gave my life to him and said, I want to follow you. But then I remember about a month later thinking to myself, now what? I made the decision to follow God. I prayed that prayer that the pastor told me to pray. Do I just wait for 60 years until my life insurance policy kicks in? Like, what do I do between here and there? And the reason we didn't know is because we didn't talk about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is the in-between what we understand about God now. You could say it like this. If the kingdom of heaven is any place where God's presence dwells with us, that it's here, that it's now, and that while you and I are citizens of this country, we actually have a dual citizenship. When we become followers of Jesus, we also become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. I don't know about you, but I love to travel. I just, I think it's so fun to experience different cultures and try different things. I love the adventure of it. And about a month after I came on staff, this would have been close to eight and a half years ago, um, we had just had our first child, my wife and I, Maddie. She was about three months old. And Pastor Ron, who was the lead pastor at the time, said to me, I'm heading to India. Would you like to come? And I started to think about that. And I thought to myself, well, I could stay home with my three-month-old and have her wake me up every two and a half hours all night long with crying and diapers and vomiting. Or, or I could head to India and get a good night's sleep and travel and explore new things. And I thought, I think God's calling me to India. <laughs> Praise the Lord. And you know what? My wife stayed with me even when I got back, which was fantastic. And by the way, if you ever want to get to know your boss, just fly for 20 hours with him in the first month of working with him. Here's how it went with Ron. I, I'm just going to let you in on a little secret. Ron likes to sprawl out, okay? So... So in the airplane, and you know seats in airplanes, the seats are small. And Ron, about nine hours in, falls asleep, and he's like sprawled out into my seat. And I'm, he's my boss. I'm brand new, like 26. I'm like in the corner with Ron like this. He's all spread out, enjoying himself on the flight. Now on the flight home, I got to know Ron. He started to come into my space, and I was like, I don't think so. And then I'd pretend to be asleep, you know? It's like, boom, here, get your own space, Ron. Is he in here? I hope not. But I love cultures. We get to India, and one night, um, it was just the two of us with a, a small crew, and one night he was going to bed. It was about 10 o'clock, and we're in this, like, rural area of India. Like, we're the only two white guys that you'll see, that you'll see out of 100,000 people, you know? And um, I thought, I'm just going to go explore. That seems like a good idea. I've got a brand-new child at home, and no one knows where I am, and the only other person who knows I'm here is sound asleep. I'm going to go explore. So I threw on my backpack, 
And I just went out into the city, totally got lost, just walked for blocks, drinking in the culture, enjoying it, have no idea where I am. No one speaks, they all speak the language just fine. I don't speak their language. And I went into this little coffee shop and there was a gentleman there and there was a phone. And I thought, I want to call Maria because it's 11 and a half hours different. She's probably awake. And so I walked in and, um, and I show him my money and I point to the phone because I don't speak a lick of Malayalam, which is the main language. I show my money. I point to the phone. I like to use the phone. And he does, he does this. I'm going to try to do it. Uh, so please don't laugh because I'll make you do it next. He, he, he went like this to me and with his head which I thought he was saying no, which seemed very odd to me because the phone was literally right there. So confused, I said, um, you know, I have money, you have a phone, and I kind of put the money down, and he did this to me. Come to find out, that means yes, go ahead, by all means. I thought he was saying no, you may not. So finally, he like walks me over, gives me the phone, and I'm like, oh, this, me- this means yes. Excellent. Try it. It's not easy to do. Try it with your heads. Yeah, there you Look at you're doing it. That's fantastic. I can't believe you actually did it. <laughs> Lemmings. That's fantastic. Uh, woo! So, so here's what I learned in that moment. I learned that anytime you enter into a new culture, you become a student of that culture. That it does not serve you well to walk into a new cultural paradigm with your old cultural understandings. That to actually embrace a culture, engage in a culture, you have to know the culture, understand the culture, understand the stories. And here's how that plays in with us. When we become followers of Jesus, we enter into a new culture, a new community, a new setting called the kingdom of heaven. And in the kingdom of heaven, there are new stories that God wants to teach us. I want to I talk about two of the truths of the kingdom of heaven. The first is this. When you become a Jesus follower, you become God's child. And God is the king in the kingdom of heaven. And you become like a prince or a princess in the kingdom, which is an identity that no one can ever rob from you. That God has bestowed on you. You are his daughter, his son in the kingdom. And just like you and I have earthly parents who love us, who want good things for us, our heavenly father, God, actually has good plans for us, wants good things for us, and wants us to experience a good and meaningful life. And the second reality is this. We live in God's kingdom, and that's, while it's not visual, while it's kind of unseen, it's a kingdom that can never be shaken. That we can go through trying times, difficult times, painful times. But that's where I'm saying it doesn't have to ever be hell. Because we live in God's kingdom where his power and presence is here. And we have access to him all the time, and his kingdom can never be shaken. And based on that, Jesus says, I'm going to teach you about the kingdom of God in the Sermon on the Mount. And here's what I want to teach you about it, that you now live in a new culture. For his followers who are listening to him, he would say, you're no longer Jewish people living in Jerusalem. You're not citizens of the kingdom of God. For me, I would say you're dual citizens. We live in the United States, but we also now live in this kingdom of God. And the big idea is this, living in this new culture, it's time to change the way we've been thinking about life and about God. Because Full intimacy and interaction with God is now in our midst. It's now in our midst. And my dream, as I've been praying for us, my dream for these next nine weeks is that we would begin to understand what it looks like to live in a new culture, in a new paradigm, in a new reality called the kingdom of God. We're not going to spend nine weeks 
with Jesus telling us what we're doing wrong. We're going to spend nine weeks exploring what it looks like to rewrite stories about what actually leads us to a good life based on our citizenship in the kingdom of God. Now, how many of you are like me? You like to, you like to read for fun. Is there anybody else who likes to read for fun? That's fantastic. We actually beat the odds. That's pretty good. I love to read for fun. My parents love to read, and so they instilled that in me. They've always got a couple books going. And my dad was up visiting recently, and uh, he had this big book, and he passed one to me, so we're reading. But my dad and I read books very differently, and I don't know if any of you are like my dad. My dad reads the first chapter of a book, then he skips 400 pages and reads the last chapter of a book. Does anybody else do that? Yeah, a couple of you. Okay, he told me this, and I looked at him and said, what? why on earth would you do that? That is like the worst idea ever. We'll get back to you in a second. <laughs> and he said to me, well, if I'm going to invest three weeks reading this book, I'd like to know what the payoff is. Is it actually worth reading? And while I don't subscribe to that, because I like to kind of walk it out chronologically, I figure the author wrote it this way for a reason. It makes sense what he's saying, doesn't it? If you're going to invest hours of your time, wouldn't it be nice to know if the payoff is worth it? And so what I want to do is, based on that logic, I want to actually give us the closing paragraph of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, here's the payoff to it, because I'm not asking us to invest nine weeks. Jesus is asking us to invest our lives in the kingdom, to invest everything we have to rewriting some stories about the way that life works. And Jesus says, if you do that, here's, here's the payoff. Remember, this is the very end. He's just preached the whole sermon up on this mountain. At the end, he says this. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, what he's saying is anyone who repents, who changes their way of thinking, who rewrites their stories, because we all know that our thoughts affect our actions. Our actions become habits and habits become our lives. Anyone who repents, who changes their way of thinking after hearing my words, and then puts them into practice. It's like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain came down. And the streams rose up. And the winds blew and beat against that house. But that house did not fall because its foundation was the rock. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I just spent this entire sermon rewriting stories for you about the way that life works. About how to experience the life that you actually want. And if you hear these stories of mine, and repent, change your way of thinking, and then put it into action, then it doesn't matter if the rains come down and the floods come up. And the rains came down and the floods came up. And the, Anybody? Oh, yeah. I apologize, because that's going to be in your head now. It doesn't matter if the rains come down and the floods came up and the wind beats against your house. Your house, your life will not fall does not have to be hell, even in the worst moments. Why? Because you built your life on the foundation, which is my word. That's the payoff. That's the promise. Now he goes the other direction and says this, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, who hears my narratives, my stories, and says, you know what? I like my own stories better. He says, you're going to walk out this life and the rains are going to come down. The floods are going to come up because you're like a man who built his house on the sand. And when the rains came down, the streams rose up and the wind blew and beat the house, it fell down and crashed. And again, it's not a threat. Jesus is not threatening us. 
He's inviting us to something great. He's inviting us to be students of a new culture, of a new reality, of a kingdom of heaven that has come near to us when we enter into a relationship with God. To rewrite our stories about life, about relationships, about our heavenly father based on the fact that Jesus died and rose again. And when he rose again, he broke the power of death forever and he gave us access to himself. So I want to ask you, this is, this is the question as we launch this series. Do you want a good life? Do you want to live your life in such a way that when the rains of life come pouring down, and they will, they will, the only certainty is that there are certain levels of uncertainty. The rains of life will come pouring down. Do you want to live your life in such a way that when the rain comes pouring down, you don't get soaked? Jesus is saying this. Do you want to live your life in such a way that when the floods come rising up, unemployment, relational disaster, you fail the class you needed to pass in order to graduate, when the floods of life come rising up, do you want to live your life in such a way that you don't drown? When the winds of life beat against you, do you want to live in such a way that you don't get beat down by the wind? Jesus says, if you want that kind of a life, and that is a good life, If you want that kind of a life, then experience a new awareness of a new culture that you're living in called the kingdom of heaven. It's come near to you. And the invitation is to change everything in our way of thinking in light of this, to become students of a new cultural norm. And it will shape our thoughts. It just will. The series will shape our understanding about ourselves, about God, about each other, about this world we live in, about community, about forgiveness, about about anger, about addiction. It'll change all of our thoughts, which will then shape our actions. And if you put enough actions together, it will shape a life. And the big question for each of us today is, have you ever entered into the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven? Are you a citizen? The, The citizenship invitation is there. Have you taken hold of it? Are you a follower of Jesus? Because when you are, he says, you're now my son. You're now my daughter. You're now a citizen of the kingdom. And how do you get that citizenship? You don't have to pass a test. You don't have to take a class. You don't have to get enough right answers. We found out on Easter Sunday that Jesus paid for your citizenship and for mine when he gave his life on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin. And he made a way for us to come to him when he rose from the dead three days later. And he broke the power of sin and death and destruction. And he made a way for his spirit to live in us and guide and lead us. So the only thing you need to do to become a citizen in the kingdom, to become a child of God, is accept the gift that God has already offered to you, which is to come and know him and experience his forgiveness, experience his grace that is overflowing in favor for you. I want to pray to wrap our time up together. I'm going to pray for all of us because this journey into the kingdom, it's uncharted territory for a lot of us. Rewriting some stories that have laid under the surface for a long time in our lives, rewriting some of those narratives about ourselves and about God and about each other, that's some big work. And I want to ask God's Spirit to guide us over the next nine weeks. Did you know that this series is going to take us into the summer That's crazy. Into June. That's why we have palm trees on there. I thought, well, it's going to be summertime. We're going to be at the beach by the time the series ends. But it's a big one for us. And because I'm from Southern California and I do love the beach. Just throwing it out there. I want to pray for you though, because it's big. It's big. 
And I also want to give you a chance, if you've never entered into the kingdom, to enter in today, to pray and say, God, I want to have a relationship with you. I want to experience you. I want your forgiveness. I want this life you're offering. If that's you, you can repeat a simple prayer after me, and I'll let you know partway through the prayer when that's going to be your time to do that. So go ahead. Let's join together in prayer. Holy Spirit, I am, I am asking you right now on behalf of all of my friends and on behalf of myself that as we dive into this series, as we dive into Jesus' most famous teaching, that you would help us to understand what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That you would give us a unique awareness that we have a dual citizenship, one that is seen in the United States, but also one that is unseen in this kingdom. And while it might not be seen, it's every part is real. And this citizenship we have, Lord, is the only one that continues into eternity. So would you help us to take hold of that reality now? Would you be rewriting stories and narratives about what actually leads us to a good and meaningful life based on our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven? God, would you do that miracle in our lives? And as you do, would you lead us to a good life, to a peaceful life, to a joy-filled life, to a life that's marked by purpose and freedom and healing? God, would you do that work in our community? I'm asking on our behalf. As we continue to pray, if you're ready to commit your life to God, to enter into the kingdom of heaven, to take advantage of your dual citizenship, you can repeat these simple words after me. Either whisper them where you're sitting or you can say them in your head. Just say these words. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you love me and that you gave your life to pay the penalty for my sin. And I want to have a relationship with you. So would you come into my life and forgive me of my sin? Would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? And would you give me a unique awareness that you are near all the time? Would you rewrite my stories in light of the reality of your presence? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.